0: In 1999, John F. Kennedy flew his plane from New York City to Massachusetts to see his family for a wedding. And on board was his wife, Caroline, and her sister. Though John was a licensed pilot, he hadn't been approved for an instrument flight, which is technically uh, instruments for navigating where you're going, where you can't see as you're flying. When there was takeoff, or more so when their takeoff was delayed till dark time, He decided he wanted to take off anyway, insisted upon it. And so they flew off, and as many of you probably know, they didn't reach their destination. They crashed and all died in that crash. Investigators determined that the crash was likely caused by disorientation from flying over open water at night without any landmarks or open horizon or visible horizon. And Kennedy's lack of experience probably led him to trust what he thought he was seeing more than using the instrument that the plane was telling him to go. In many ways, I see the Bible as a navigational system. I look at it as a compass that points true north in a world that's fallen and confused. I think often of times of how we are often pressured to be pulled in different directions. Supervisors or bosses may challenge us to compromise in ways that we don't feel comfortable with. They may ask us to lie on a project in a way to help deaths get ahead, or they claim to get ahead. You scratch my back, I scratch yours kind of arrangement. Or a family member may question our loyalty and love to them as we try to tell them in concern about a sin in their lives, we're very concerned about. And all the angst of these confrontations can make us question and wonder, am I the one that's off here because there's so much animosity for saying the truth. We feel that pressure as a church as well, I think. Living in a postmodern culture where truth is defined by what you think and what you feel more so than what it is. The Bible is viewed as unintelligible, primitive, narrow-minded. The world around us seems to look at it as a book out of touch with the times. Yet our world never stops to consider In its pursuit to have peace at all costs by redefining everything under the sun, this is probably one of the most tumultuous and divided times there's been. When you look at the landscape politically, racially, socially, even religiously, people are angry. Have you noticed that? This gets a little frightening to me because you never know what's going to make someone slap or snap or or, or get upset. People are on edge as they pursue Instead of virtues, their own fulfillment. The God of self-fulfillment and self-empowerment reigns with no regard of how it may make the people around us feel. And one thing I've found in ministry is that usually what's happening in the world eventually, inevitably, finds a place or a way to creep into the church. As we continue our series called This Is Us by looking at who God wants us to be and we look at today how we want to be a learning community. We want to be a people who are committed to studying God's word. I don't think it's a far, far stretch to say that who we are and who we continue to be is determined by what we do with the word of God. Is determined by whether we believe it points true north even when everyone else might say, no, it doesn't. Now, we don't do that in an arrogant way. We don't do that in a self-righteous way. We do it compelling people to see that this is the word of life. And it can compel and help people come to know their Savior in Jesus. The psalmist in Psalm 119 loved God's word. It is the longest psalm at 175 verses, 22 stanzas and 8 verses each stanza. It, it has no real order or progression outside of that though. Rather, we see a mixture of testimonies and trust in God and yet pleas for deliverance and test, or more so in confessions of sin and protests against injustice and affliction. Yet all these are said in reference, not opposition, but in reference and devotion to God's Word. You can say the psalm is really an outburst of praise and prayer for the comfort that the psalmist finds in God's Word. And in the section um, we're gonna look at, again, 119, nine through six, we have three questions we wanna answer. The first is, why do we study God's word? What, what motivates us to study God's word? What, what moves us to? Second is, how do we study God's word? How do we go about it in a way systematically or just practically to get a better understanding of it and retain it? And lastly, what are the benefits to studying God's word? He's going to express to us the impact that studying God's Word has had on him personally. When it comes to why we study God's Word, the writer says in the beginning of verse 10, I seek you with all my heart. When he says with all my heart, he's saying a single-minded devotion, a razor-sharp focus, meaning his relationship with God is the primary agenda of his life. It is the thing he will choose above all others. Now, there are other things important to him, but when he has to choose between them and God, there is no question he will always lean towards God. When I was in high school, I played football, and football was kind of like life to me. Not healthy, but that's the way it was. And one of the things that they were big on is if you weren't playing football, you were in the weight room getting ready for football. So if you weren't playing another sport during the off-season, you'd have to be in the weight room following a strict regimen, and after training camp came around there was no 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 excuses for missing any practices well there's one occasion where during training camp we were having two days two practices in one day i went home after the first practice and my dad said to me son you're gonna have to stay home and watch Shante. i've got to go to work so i had to miss the second practice i went back the next day thinking Not a big deal, the coach is gonna let me go with this. Obviously, I couldn't do anything about it. But instead, he gave me the merit. And he said, Peter, as a leader of this team, there's no excuses. This is completely unacceptable. Now this sounds silly, but hearing him say that because I was so committed and invested in football made me uncontrollably start to sob in front of all my teammates. It it was embarrassing, completely (laughs) embarrassing. But I was so committed. I was so, you know, I wanted to do this more than he could even imagine. I would have even left my sister. I don't think she's here. I would have even left my sister at home in front of the TV to go to practice that day if I could. I've never done that, but you get my point. The psalmist, in the same way, has an all consuming passion to know God, and nothing will stop him from meeting that pursuit. Nothing. But notice the correlation he makes between this and the second half of verse 10, where he says, do not stray, do not let me stray from your commands. See, he makes a connection between obeying God and, and his relationship with God. This is the heart behind why he studies. He doesn't study to simply have an intellectual knowledge of what the Bible says. He's not doing this for an academic pursuit. He's not a legalist who's trying to know all the rules to make sure he stays on God's good side. He is trying to know God. This is personal to him. It builds his relationship with God. It's a means of growing closer to him. It is not an end to itself. It is his way of knowing God. And it also mirrors the way he views it will mirror the way he views God as well. He says in verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Disobeying God's word was not viewed as just a judicial thing, like getting a ticket. You know, when you get a ticket, it's not good for your record. It's not the end of the world. Well, in the same way, people can look at sin as just, you know, it's a bad blemish on my record with God. But people get, you know, they sinned. We get tickets all the time, so it's not that big of a deal. Well, the psalmist takes it a bit further here. He says, in spite of what we know, this side of heaven, I'm I'm adding here, in spite of what we know, this side of heaven, which through the cross, all these penalties, penalties are wiped away. We have forgiveness ready to be given to us as soon as we ask our Father for it. In spite of that, though, God doesn't take sin lightly. God does not take sin lightly. Because to sin is not to simply break his rules. It's to break his heart. It's to hurt him. It's to bring a wedge between that personal relationship we have with him. Notice how the psalmist in essence is saying, I've memorized your word because I don't want to sin against you. I don't want to hurt you. Not just I don't want to break your rules. I don't want to offend you. David said a similar thing after his sin with Bathsheba. In Psalm 51, he says to God, I have sinned against you. The counterpart to that is found in John 15:10, where Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. The difference between religion and a relationship is that it is based on love, not fear. It is based on your desire to please that person. Any healthy relationship you have, you will find yourself wanting to go out of your way to please that person. It's just the way it is, the dynamic of it. You'll find yourself being selfless and considerate towards them. You'll find yourself being willing to sacrifice in ways maybe you typically wouldn't, because that's what love compels us to do. You desire them to be at joy and that brings you joy i think of holly becoming a jet fan and what that means is typically morning with me every sunday there's a game (laughs) folks it's love that's sacrifice but on a serious level on a more personal level it's when you see someone's worth whatever you need to sacrifice you get hurt when they're hurt you're not fearing judgment for them from them More so, it disappoints you to see them disappointed. It hurts them to see them hurt. To obey God is to love Him, yet to take His instructions lightly is to take Him lightly. It's to look at Him a notch below what He truly deserves. It is the ultimate level of disrespect to a jealous God who is zealous for us. Because whether we mean it or not, blatant sin... An attitude where we just completely disregard God by how we live devalues his significance in our lives. We are rejecting his goodness. We are rejecting his love. We are rejecting his rightful place as Lord when we say, I don't want to listen to what you've told me. Hebrews 10, 29 says it goes as far as trampling the cross when we live in disobedience to God's word. Now I'll say this with the understanding that God doesn't want us walking on eggshells. God is not looking to condemn us. He's not looking for ways to judge us, just to judge us. He's not the kid with the magnifying glass looking to burn every ant in sight. That is not God's nature at all. He loves us and he's working for us. But I'm finding more people are seeing that they can kind of look at Scripture one way and God another. That they can ignore the principles found in Scripture and not see that as ignoring God. And I just got to tell you, I don't see anywhere in Scripture where that's consistent. I've seen people who are willing to receive the message of grace and yet find themselves unable or unwilling to embrace the rest of Scripture. That is inconsistent with the gospel. It is inconsistent with the very heart of God himself. The Bible is not an impersonal book filled with suggestions or examples that we can pick and choose what we want to live by. It is the very word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. God-breathed suggests that as the authors wrote the scriptures out, it's as if God's breath was coming out with every word they wrote. The intention was God's intention. The thoughts were God's thoughts through his Holy Spirit. He had 40 different men through a series, through a 1,500-year period, write out these 66 books, and in every verse, we find the will, the character, and the purpose of God for our lives in Christ Jesus. Even the parts we find hard and difficult is God speaking to us. Even the parts we look at and we say, I don't know if I can do that is God loving us graciously through his counsel. And when that personal dimension sets in, that dimension where we look at the Bible, reading it as God, similar to a friend speaking face-to-face to another friend, God is trying to speak to us when we read the Bible. When that sets in, that's when the Bible has claim and authority in our lives. That's when it has a place to do its work in us. The Bible, second only to Jesus, is the best way to know God. And so you might even say that to love God is to love God's word. To love God is to love God's word. We study God's word to know him. But how do we study God's word? The psalmist gives us four disciplines to follow. It's not an exhaustive list. It doesn't go through the technical ways of of exegeting a passage. But the principles, I think, are vital to making our hearts Soft and receptive to scripture, which at the end of the day, God definitely wants that more than anything else. The first is praying for a teachable spirit. Prayer is central before you start opening the word of God up. He says in verse 12, the end of it, teach me your decrees. Teach me your decrees, just a simple prayer. Now, there's two obstacles when we open up God's word. The first is, it is a comprehensive book. It's written to a certain demographic in a certain time who had specific challenges. And so we understand that as we look at the book. We also understand there's some language in it that's maybe not as um, normal to us as, as, as it was for those they were writing to. Poetic and figurative language. That even the best of biblical scholars have a hard time understanding at times. But then there's also spiritual of Second 2 Corinthians 2, 4-16 talks about how the truths of God are spiritually discerned When we became believers, we were given the mind of Christ through the Holy Spirit. We were able to see the scriptures in ways we weren't able to see before that moment came along. He is the mind of Christ for us. But it's only as we rely on Him that the scriptures come alive. It's only as we intentionally ask God to move in our hearts through the Spirit that things come to us as they should. Because let's be honest, we struggle with a few things, don't we? We struggle with not rushing through reading the Bible. We struggle with not being distracted with what's to come that day or the show we want to watch. We struggle with reading things into the text that aren't there or maybe to soften the blow of the challenge. You read the passage of the Good Samaritan. And it may be tempting to look at what Jesus is saying and still question how far does Jesus really want me to go to help those in need? I mean, we know he's calling us to help those in need. That's obvious. But some situations are a little messy and complicated. And do I really want to go in that particularly? We may find ourselves trying to soften the blow of the challenge to give and to help, even when it's hard to give and help. But then there's the struggle with dullness of heart. It just comes over us we have a hard time finding our hearts emotionally inclined to read the word as we know we should. Or we're reading a text over and over again, but we're just coming up blank. It's not, it's not hidden home. We're not understanding how, how it applies, what it means. Pastor Charles Spurgeon put it best when he said, I think the difficulties of Holy Scripture as so many prayers stools, upon, upon which I kneel and worship the glorious Lord. What we cannot comprehend by our understanding We apprehend by our affections. All of God's word is a main element in that love of God's law, which brings peace, great peace. Sometimes prayer is the central thing that's missing when we're having a hard time seeing God's word for what it is. Second, we're to memorize scripture. Verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart. The same way as saying, there's something I treasure and I want to put it in safekeeping. I put it in a, you know, a, a, a security box at a bank or, 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 or my vault. I treasure it. I find a way to keep it safe. The heart was known as the seat of all affections. And to store something there was to say, it's valuable to me. It's important to me. The Bible for the, for the, for the psalmist here is not just a book he carried. It's not just a book he went around with and read all the time. It's a book that he loved so much that he literally took within himself. He took within himself so he can carry it with himself no matter where he was, no matter what challenge may come. And I think of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness when I think of memorizing scripture and the importance of it. And I think about how he was challenged by Satan after 40 days of not eating. He was weak. He was in a place where oftentimes we're tempted and we fall. And t- Satan tempted him with trying to make stones into bread. Or the the temptation of jumping off the temple and seeing if he can call angels, proving himself to be the Son of God by calling angels to save him. And lastly, the temptation of power, if he would worship Satan. And it's to parallel what happens in Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve were tempted by Satan. And yet, unlike them, Jesus was able to resist these temptations because he knew the Word of God. With every temptation that came, he was able to rebuke every single one with a reference for the word of God. And here's my challenge to you. What are the promises of God you lean on when times are hard? What are the scriptures you call to mind when you don't know what to do? When you're in a time of distress, verses like, the Lord is an ever-present help in times of trouble. When you don't know what to do, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. Folks, those kind of verses are crucial because you're not always going to be able to turn to the Bible when you're in a time of distress. And some of the worst decisions we make can happen in minutes. In minutes. We need to have the word of God stored in our hearts. We need to. We need to. Third thing in verse 13 he says with my lips I recount all the laws that come from my mouth from your mouth now this could be either referring to teaching or it could be referring to reciting God's truths literally one by one so that there's an intentionality behind it he's really gleaning everything he can from it maybe he's trying to preach to himself when he's discouraged maybe he's trying to keep himself encouraged by remembering these truths intimately whether it's that or teaching others, it's still the same concept. When so you teach others, you have to cement these truths in a way you typically wouldn't. You have to dig deeper. These truths come a little bit more real to you. And the last thing he meditates, or he says, is meditates on God's Word. Verse 15 says, I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. It's deep reflection on God's truths. Not just what God says, His rules, but... God's ways, you notice he mentions. they could literally be looking at the ways that God has saved his people in the past. You look at scripture and you consider how God saved Israel from Egypt or how he brought them back from exile even after they sinned so greatly. And we remember in our time of distress that God is a forgiving God. He is a saving God. And if he was willing to forgive then, he surely will forgive now. If he was able to save then, he surely can save now and it encourages and builds our faith you know why it's so important to meditate on god's truths because we forget we forget god's long track record we know he's good we know he's faithful we we read it but if we're not focused on it we forget we look at the israelites in the desert and we see their tendency to grumble and even go to the point where they even said to moses well it's far better in egypt Life was better as slaves in Egypt. It sounds ridiculous and absurd. And yet we do the same thing. We pray for things. We pray for a spouse. We pray for a job that was difficult. And we see God touch those situations and change those situations. But as time goes on, we forget. And we start complaining again. And reflecting on God's ways sobers us to His goodness. It keeps us from a cynical spirit. It protects us from the pride that would forget how good and gracious he's been to you and me. We love God by loving his word. We love God by loving his word. Well, what are the benefits of studying God's word? As we commit to prayer, memorization, reciting, and meditation on God's word, over time we start to share his heart. We start to see things the way he sees things. Life takes on a completely different meaning the more we immerse ourselves in his word. The psalmist isn't talking here like a beginner. He's not talking here as someone who's just started to study God's word. He's talking as someone who has experienced the benefits of studying God's word. He didn't come to the realization that sin is against God overnight. That was something that came as he poured himself over scripture and saw intimately how his sin would affect God one battles with sin, just like us, he says in verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Now, this is a completely different aspect here, because it's not saying I love God's word only, but I love doing God's word. It's one thing to love God's word, it's another thing to love obeying God's word. i got to tell you, though, God's not satisfied with anything less than to love to do his commands. Jesus calling out hypocrisy in fifteen Matthew fifteen eight says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus is in the business of changing hearts, not just changing bad habits to good habits. Because you know what? Bad habits can creep right back in. It's your affections that determine your habits. It's what you love that determines what you ultimately will do in the end. You could be good for a while, but if you love sin, you will find yourself crawling back to sin. It is the way it is. And so God is after changing our hearts because he understands, he knows, if we're not cheerful givers, guess what? It won't last. If we're not willing servants, if we're not leaders of the church who've served the church unbegrudgingly, it isn't good enough. It's hollow. It won't have a long-changing effect. And the more someone is immersed in God's word, the more that starts to take on a part of who they are. It's not something you can tame by yourself. just isn't. Romans 12, 2 puts it this way. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. One of the ways we can look at this is picture... Our minds is hot water. And whatever we put in it as bags, whether it be bitterness, anger, jealousy, or the word of God, whatever we put in our minds and we allow to brew in it will have the lasting effect there. We'll have a permeating effect. If we allow the Bible to be what is dipped into our minds and brewing, over time it will renew us. But this takes intentionality. It doesn't just happen overnight. We have a lot more things like Satan, the world's patterns, and our flesh that are pulling for our attention and nudging us to conform to the world. Biblical scholar James Gary, when he was younger, was so impressed by a friend he had, who he noticed was stable and patient and just one of those guys who you look at and say, boy, I kind of hate you. (laughs) And it's really because he just... He was a great man of God. And he looked at him and said, I want what you have. And so they were having a conversation back and forth, and and his friend told him what the secret was. He said, I read Ephesians. What? You just read Ephesians? Yes, I read Ephesians. Now, Gary's thinking to himself, I read Ephesians a million times. I don't feel the way he does. What was the difference? And so his friend goes on to say, while he was on vacation, he brought a small Bible with him. And he opened up the book of Ephesians, and he found himself reading all six chapters. But then he found himself so excited about reading it that he just kept reading and reading until 15 times later, he finally got up. He said, after he got up from that experience of reading it so intensely, he said, When I got up to go into the house, I was in possession of Ephesians. Or better yet, it was in possession of me. I had the feelings that I had been lifted up to sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, a feeling that was new to me. This testimony encouraged Gary to master the scriptures for himself. He began to saturate his mind and his heart with God's word so that he could freely and effectively communicate to others. See, sometimes we need to see what God's word is doing in other people's lives to realize what it can do in our lives. Sometimes we need to see what God is doing through his word, through our fellow believers, to catch a vision of what he can do in our lives that we would invest and commit ourselves wholeheartedly to this. That can happen a bit on Sunday morning. Definitely think that's the case. But I think it happens more in smaller gatherings. I think it happens more in the life group gathering. I think you get where I'm going with this. Life groups are a great opportunity. ...for us to come together and encourage each other in a more personal way. There's just a different dynamic and a different feel to it. You get to know people in ways you can't know people here. You get to see a side of them you can't see here. And people who are saturated in God's word, they carry themselves differently. They they talk differently about life and trials. They pray differently. You notice with people who are saturated in the word... ...that even as they struggle with weakness and pain... There's an ump to their prayer. There's a strength found in hope in God's word. It just pours out in a way. If you're in a life group, you can testify to that, right? You have seen that dynamic in a way you just can't capture as well on Sunday morning. So there's that personal dynamic. Or maybe just a dynamic of talking about what Pastor Tim preached that Sunday, which is what all life groups do. And as you find other people chiming in, you find yourself being challenge to think about it a little more. Maybe that dynamic challenges you to read and study that passage beyond what Pastor Tim has said that week. And you find yourself connecting the dots in ways you never have before. Maybe it's that. Maybe you're a person who can encourage people with your example. You can encourage people by how you're studying God's Word and what He's doing in your life. In fact, maybe... That's exactly the way that God wants to use you at the crossing for now, to be an example in a life group. We're starting three new ones this fall. That's my plug. And I want to encourage you, if you're not in a life group, to get in one. Because we need this as a community, not just individually. We need to take God's word seriously, together and collectively. Because to love God is to love his word. We love God by loving his word when we trust that he can change us from the inside out as we commit ourselves to prayer, memorizing, reciting, and meditating on his word. I'll finish with this last illustration. It's about um, Larry Nacer. Anyone familiar with Larry Nacer? Larry Nacer, uh, for those who aren't familiar, was a former U.S. gymnastic and Michigan State doctor who was charged with sexual abuse of over 150 women. Young girls, I should say one of which was Rachel Dan Hollander. Butchered that last name, but Rachel. She gave a statement that was mind-blowing at the, uh, the trial. She said to him, The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment, where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. Should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found, and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience the repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me though I extend that to you as well. That is the heart of a person who didn't decide just then that you know what, I'm going to trust God in this way. That's the heart of a person that's been studying and been meditating on God's word, and they were prepared for this moment to respond in that way. In their deepest hour, they can turn to real hope because it had become real in their hearts. I think that's the people God wants us to be. I know it is. And I know examples like that encourage me to become more like that. And I know as I'm in the body and I see other people striving and being faithful to God's word, I want to strive and be faithful to God's word. To love God is to love his word. That is the people we want to be. And by the grace of God, that is who we are. That is who we endeavor to be. This is us.